0: Good morning. Well, this morning uh, we're in Ephesians as we continue looking at the church and answering the question, will you marry me? Uh, Of course, we're not talking about husband and wife. We're talking about Jesus and us, Jesus and the church. And uh, two Sundays ago, we... We looked at the way Jesus sees the church, and we realized we need to see the church, see one another through his eyes, see it the way he sees it. And then last Sunday, we looked at the way Jesus loves the church, loves you and me. It reminds us that we need to love the church, love one another as Jesus loves us. This morning, we're going to look at the way Jesus serves the church. And again, we need to look at the way we need to serve her too, serve one another. So this morning, I'd like to have us read chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. There's so much we could read out of any and every section of Paul's letter, his epistle to the Ephesians. But I want us to read verses 1 through 16, and again, um, and if you were here Sunday a week ago, you heard me say, uh, purse between your lips the word church, as, uh, as we read anywhere in this letter, starting with verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. To each one of us, though, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being filled and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. When I was a young man and a, a new, f- totally devoted follower of Jesus Christ, I I landed a job uh, working for Peterson's Plumbing. Plumbing and air conditioning. And I worked in the warehouse and I worked alongside the plumbers. I could have been a plumber. I could have been a foreman. But I had uh, a calling. But while I was at Peterson's Plumbing, one of the things that we did in the warehouse, and that was a part of my job, was periodically every year to uh, to take inventory. And I don't like taking inventory. Uh, there would be bins upon bins, and you had to pull out all the little elbows and all the little pieces that go into plumbing and count them so that you could take stock and know where you're at. I don't like taking inventory. But an accounting in life, just as in plumbing, (laughs) is valuable, an accounting so that we can see where we're at, where we need to go. That's true in our personal lives. It's true if you're married. Timothy Keller says, marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confront you with yourself. And boy, I found that out. Maybe you have too. And that idea of confronting yourself jives with an article I read this week. Seth Adam Smith confessed, he said, married only for a year and a half, I've come to the conclusion that marriage isn't for me. With misgivings and doubts, in the article, Seth talks about sitting down with his father to express what was going on in his heart. This is what he wrote about sitting down with his dad. With a knowing smile, he said, Seth, you're being totally selfish. So I'm going to make this really simple. Marriage isn't for you. You don't marry to make yourself happy. You, make, you marry to make someone else happy. More than that, your marriage isn't for yourself. You're marrying for a family. And not just for the in-laws and all that nonsense, but for your future children. Who do you want to help you raise them? Who do you want to influence them? Marriage isn't for you. It's not about you. Marriage is about the person you married. And then he writes, my father's advice was both shocking and revelatory it went against the grain of today's Walmart worldview. if it doesn't make you happy you can take it back and get a new one he concludes his confession and revelation this way Seth says to all who are reading this married almost married single, or even the sworn bachelor or bachelorette, I want you to know that marriage isn't for you. No true relationship of love is for you. Love is about the person you love, and paradoxically, the more you truly love that person, the more love you receive, and not just from your significant other But from their friends and their family and thousands of others, you never would have met had your love remained self-centered. True love in marriage isn't for you. It's for others. And I thought to myself, if he was speaking about the church, it would be just as true, just as real. I have a couple other thoughts about what he wrote. First, the Walmart worldview. The Walmart worldview. A worldview is not what you normally look at. A worldview is normally what you look through. Let me just give you perhaps an example. And this is my second thought about his article that I want to continue uh, drawing out for us. My grandson, Jacob, I heard him say the other day, church is boring. This grandfather didn't want to hear him say that. But you know, I've heard him also say, I love church, or church is fun. Jacob is six. Six Six-year-olds are fickle. really fickle but a spiritual adult has a different world view a spiritual adult sees things differently a spiritual adult says church isn't for me i'm in it to see to love and to serve what Jesus does and that's true of my life and as we're learning here are reminded it needs to be true of ours as the church because Jesus created it it's his church his people and I serve because it's Jesus I worship and it's his bride His body, his family, his household, his temple. And it's mine too. So it's not about church being boring or church being fun. It's it's about something so much bigger. And a worldview that's a Walmart worldview isn't going to fit the worldview of the church that we get from his word, that we get from Jesus. And just a third thought. I said I was only going to give you two, but just a third thought is that here we read that this church is all about building itself up in love. Do not lose sight of that. That's the nature of its service. Serve her. The way Jesus serves her. You know, we all need to serve. And early this week as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I could just spend uh, our time telling you what to do. But then the deeper question is, why do you do it? Why do you do it? a worldview, a philosophy, a dream that comes from God is the perspective that validates the perspiration. It's the inspiration for the perspiration. God's dream. If it's all about do's and don'ts, I mean, haven't we realized that do's and don'ts Not in a dream, but in drudgery and discontent. A dream, God's dream, inspires dream doing and dream living. This week I read, uh, well it came as a tweet. Rick Warren tweeted this. I want to share it with you. Leaders always start with why before modeling how. Think about that just a moment. Leaders always start with why before modeling how. Now, there's a great deal of wisdom right there. Then he says, People quit when they forget why. People quit when they forget why. And then he says, preach why and how, and you get wow. I like that. Preach why and how, and you get wow. Serving is the how, but God's dream is the why. There's no quit when you serve God's dream. And the church is God's dream. It's his creation. It's his agency. In fact, as we've seen from Ephesians 5, it's the bride of Christ that he wants to present unto himself radiant. So this morning, I want us to consider, as we consider the how, I want us to consider the what, the where, and the who, what God is doing, where God is building, and whom God is calling. What is God doing? Well, you probably already have an inkling. But have you ever thought that the focus of what God's doing, the spearhead of what God is doing, is the church? When you read Ephesians, and I hope you've been reading Ephesians from the beginning to the end, but if I just walk you through very quickly some of the major ideas. In chapter 1, we realize we, you, Me, we are part of God's cosmic plan in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, after he unfolds God's cosmic plan that envelops you and me, Paul prays, he prays that you and I will get God's dream, that we'll see what God is doing, that we'll be caught up in the majesty of it the inspiration of it, the realization of it. I just think that is so incredible. He just starts praying. And his prayer is that you and I will see God's dream. And what is God's dream? It's the church. In chapter 2, we see that we're part of God's new work. And in verses 8, 9, and 10, he says, this isn't your work. It's my work. It's grace to you. It's a gift. It's not something you can claim for yourself. And that's the way it's built. That's the way it begins and ends. It's my work. But he says, you were created in Christ for good works good things, beautiful things. And then in chapter 2, verses 14 through 22, he says that in Jesus Christ, there is no longer two but one. What's that sound like? That sounds like marriage to me. He says there's no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. There's no longer any division. In Jesus Christ, there's only one. One new creation, one new humanity, one new people, one new society. Man, if that doesn't get your attention and say, I want to be a part of that. And Paul is saying, you are a part of that if you're in Christ. That's your new reality, And boy, I understand about that. Some of us, you know, as maybe it's just aging, or maybe we have some sickness or some malady, and there's a new normal. This is to be our new normal, our new reality. And then in chapter 3, he says, you and me, we're part of God's grand purpose in the Messiah. Every time you read Christ, think Messiah. And he reveals this great mystery that God is using the church not in just some earthling way, but in some cosmic way. Even the powers of heavenly places look down to see what God is doing. And you know where they look? The church. What's God really all about? The church. You want to see what God is really trying to do? Look at the church. And that makes sense in Jesus Christ, in this new humanity and in this new society. And then in chapter 4, he says, after he finishes chapter 3 in another prayer, part of the doxology that even... Climaxes, as Brian reminded us and read again this morning, is that we are part of a new community, a Christ like community. That's a dream. It's God's dream. It's a dream that Paul tells us he had before the creation of the world in the secret council of his own purposes and will, a vision. And even then, it was all to take place in Jesus Christ. And that's what he tells us in chapter 1. That seems like a preposterous dream to earthling ears, but it's God's dream, and you and I are a part of it. And that's the why. If you forget the why, You'll grow tired and weary and worn. And you'll give up the how. You'll walk away from the how. You'll disparage, despise the how. Unless you always keep in your heart the dream of God. It's human character this church. It's not an ideal church. It's the church we know. And its human character is not accidental or unfortunate. It's the incarnation of the risen Christ. People who think and talk like Paul, who talk about resurrection life and power in daily living and serving together Creating a new community, a new humanity. Not just nice people, new people, as C.S. Lewis said. It's the earthly display of his presence and his power. The earthly display of his presence and his power. That's why Paul can say, to God be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Amazing words, amazing thoughts. It's a people. It's not an ideal church or a heavenly church. It's the church that you and I know, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's why as we saw in chapter 5, the church is the body and he is the head. There is not two, there is only one. But It's a people who are the realization of Jesus' prayer on earth as it is in heaven. It's a realization of Jesus' parables, the imagination of God for a people exhausted and worn who need a dream. It's the realization of Jesus' promise in His Spirit. That's what the church is. Sometimes we're all too familiar, though, in our personal experience with the triumph of the flesh. All that's petty. All that's puny. When we no longer know why, We no longer model the how. We no longer show the world, wow. I want us to get in on God's wow. I want us to get in on his dream, the true beauty and potential of his church. Vision, dreams, if you will, are the ability to see potential in what others overlook. I don't know if this, uh, this week any of you caught, I think it was Thursday, wasn't it? Or maybe, no, it was Friday. In San Francisco, little five-year-old boy, Miles Scott, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation, and he got to be... I want to say Batman, but he was Bat-Kid for a day. They turned San Francisco into Gotham City, and uh, you could watch it live. I don't know if it was on television, but I kept clicking over on the computer to see what was going on with, uh, with little Miles. Someone said this about that day, wild, wild that an idea that was supposed to make one kid happy for a day has made a whole city happy. That's true of the church, too. That's true of your life and mine in Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Serve what God is doing. And serve where God is building. Where is God building? He's building right here. He's building with you. Not programs. He's building with hearts and minds. Not brick and mortar. He's building here as if there was no church anywhere else in the world. He's building here as if this were his only people on earth. That you and I alone... We're the true representation of the gospel and the reality of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. That we should become the household of God, his family, his new temple, his true temple on earth. That's a high calling. This is where God is building. That calls us to a sense of identity and accountability. It's not just what the church does together, it's who it is together. And that's something I hope somehow to plant, and I'm so prayerful that the Spirit will get this across, maybe in a way that I can. That it's not just you alone, it is us. It is the collective church that makes an impact in this world. When people look over and see a people that live in such a way that it is in stark contrast with the way this society in which we live operates, this community of the world lives, suffer, wounded, sick, and sad, without hope and a purpose and a legacy, And an inheritance, those are things that are true of us. And to be embodied among a people who actually live by grace, who love covenantally, not conditionally, but unconditionally, who forgive, who express joy, who have a dream, that's bigger than this world, and the dreams of this world pale in comparison. That's the people of God. That's what should be aglow within his people, within his community, within his household, within his body of believers. God's building right here in our midst With you and me as the building blocks, as the living stones of his holy temple. These are words that Paul uses again and again here in his letter to the Ephesians. What is it we can do? Disciple, disciple, disciple others. A few weeks ago, Robbie Galati, who just earlier this week launched his new book, Growing Up. It's a book about how, why, (laughs) everything you need to know about discipleship. I was given the opportunity to review it. Just in one place, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that uh, he draws on three myths That have to do with discipleship. One's the holy man myth, the ministry myth, and the maturity myth. The holy man myth is the idea that there's a sacred leader with privilege before God. Some of you might think I'm like that. You know, he's the holy man, he's the guy who makes it happen. We all walk in his shadow. We can't do what he does, he gets it done. And he calls it a myth because it's false. It's not biblical. It's not the way God is building. And then the ministry myth. And he talks about how because of my sins, he says, my reserved personality, my lack of talents, my laziness in devotions, I'm not ready for ministry. I can't do it. I'm disqualified. There's always others that could do it better. And just as he talks about it in the first person, I talk. I mean, that's that's true of me today. Do you think I'm sinless? That sometimes I don't feel like my sins disqualify me. You don't think that sometimes I'm lazy in devotions or weak in prayer? And that I don't think somehow that that disqualifies me? If you see me with my head down in prayer before I come up here, my prayer is, God, please use me despite myself. Honor your word. Glorify your truth. May your spirit take it. Not because I'm in some special category. Why, after 40 years, am I still driven To live for Jesus Christ. Because his dream has a hold of me. There's no dream like it on earth. There's no reality like it on earth. And because it's true, I serve it. It's true in my heart. And it's got to be true in yours. And when it is, you'll realize that that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's why he poured out his spirit on you and me that we might serve, that we might do the work of ministry. And the third myth is the maturity myth. He says we've got to be mature before ministry. So in other words, after seminary or after I'm qualified. Well, I've done all that, and sometimes I still feel just as unqualified. You see, the powerful thing in what Paul is saying here in verses 11, 12, and 13 is that the picture of maturity in verse 13 comes by the ministry in verse 12. Do you want to grow in Christ and grow His church? Do you want to grow in the sense of adding to his building project? Start caring for people. Start discipling people. Who can you disciple? How about your children? Have you ever at some point here, for example, at Grace, bumped into somebody and said, hey, why don't we get together and talk about the Lord? Let's get together for coffee and let's spend some time in his word and talk about how we can really live out this Christian life. Do this for real. Why not get together with me and we'll talk about instead of what what annoys us with this world, we'll talk about how you and I through the power of his spirit can start living for him in a way that makes a difference in this world. And let's do it together. Let's get involved in a small group. Let's get involved. That's the ministry. In verse 11, the mentors edify, build up, get intentional. Everything is discipleship in Jesus Christ. I mean, how can you go wrong? It's about a new humanity. It's not about some specific little thing. So the mentors, if you will, you could be a mentor, you see. Help others to do the ministry. Model that. And the maturity of verse 13 is expressed as a result of doing it. But what so often happens is that we go from verse 11 to verse 13 to verse 12. We want maturity before we do ministry. And maturity comes through ministry. Wow. Whom? is God calling, you and me. You know, I'm no different than you. And within the body of Christ, things annoy us. But what if you were to look at the person that annoys you or lets you down or discourages you or frustrates you? What if you were to look at that person as somebody who is responding to the call of God? What if you saw in that disappointment, discouragement, betrayal, an opportunity to demonstrate the covenant love of God? What if you were to see that person as someone that God has called, that he's trying to grow, that he's trying to strengthen, and he wants you, he's put you in this special position to support, to encourage, to show the better way. And then we would live long enough to see each other locked arm in arm serving the Lord and seeing the higher realization of his dream because we let Jesus Christ be Lord of our lives instead of letting our human nature dictate the way we try to operate within the supernatural realm of what God is doing. That would be pretty amazing stuff. And yet, churches across this land are weak and feeble because people are trying to do it in their own strength. They're trying to do the how without God's why. And there's no wow, no wow whatsoever. What if we saw the church not full of failures, but responders to the call? What if we showed forgiveness, faithfulness, tenderness, guidance? And what if we received it? What if we showed love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the work of the Spirit, the hallmark of the church? It'll happen if we put Jesus first. He's the one who makes two one. I got an email. I'm, <clears throat> yesterday, it says our 10-year-old grandson got out of school early. I picked him up, and we went out for lunch. While we were together, we started talking about church. He told me that he likes going to church. I asked him why. Why? He said that he likes to sit with his parents and that he takes notes. He said that right now, Pastor John is preaching a series on will you marry me? Pastor John is not talking about two people getting married, but he's talking about the church. The church is not the building, but it is the people that come to church and love Jesus. Pastor John is telling us what God wants our church to be like. God wants us to love each other and God. God wants our church to be full of people that want to follow Jesus and do what Jesus wants us to do, with love. And then the grandmother says, Can you imagine what kind of world this would be if we all lived like God wants the church to live? Amazing! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Will you stand with me? I love our church. I love you. I love what God is doing in our midst. It's real. It's authentic. I just want you to remember the why. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, let us dream your dream. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said amen. Amen. God bless you.